Pueblo and Apache interactions set the tone for Spanish colonization, but it also led to revolt in 1680. The Pueblo and Apache had used kinship rules to establish trade relationships of reciprocity, but the Spanish introduced horses, and this brought a revolutionary change to the trade between Indians as well as between Indians and the Spanish. The, the encomenderos, the landowners um, of the encomiendas in New Mexico, gained control of Pueblo's land and their labor, but they didn't own that land. They only had the use of that land. Under that system, Pueblo men worked about three days a week for the Spanish, and a Pueblo family was also required to give tribute from the products of their labor from the four other days of the week. When they, when I say they gave tribute, it means they gave um, the fruits of their labor, the crops in particular, it, to the Spanish, um, and it was this labor that the Spanish survived on while they were in New Mexico. The Spanish considered the encomienda system an alternative, an economic alternative to slavery, but there was abuse within and beyond the system, um, and the problem was the way that the Pueblo laborers controlled and used land and the products of their land in a way that the Spanish did not appreciate, meaning that they took more of it for themselves than they gave to the Spanish. However, by the time the Pueblos gave corn to the Spanish and to the missionaries, they had little left for themselves and none for the Apache who they had been trading with for many hundreds of years. This encomienda system was designed to only last for a generation while the Spanish civilized, quote-unquote, the Pueblos and absorbed them into the colonial system. The Spanish quickly took the farms of the encomiendas and transformed them into cattle ranches. Pueblo men became responsible for herds, which is why you see a lot of South southwestern Indians, Apaches, Pueblos, Navajos, uh, as cowboys. And this meant that the Spanish had to give Indians access to their horses. The Apache obtained horses from the Pueblos through the Spanish, um, or rather the Pueblos ob obtained horses from the Spanish and gave them to the Apaches, but the Spanish tried to deny them access to horses because the Spanish, the Apaches were such prominent raiders and tr could travel over the landscape so easily. Horses solved the Apaches' transportation problem. Of course, they had previously been pedestrian hunters, but and it increased trade and exchange, but now cornmeal was no longer available to the Apaches because the Pueblos were giving so much of it to the Spanish. Apache demand for cornmeal increased while the Pueblos' surplus of, of cornmeal plummeted. The Spanish stepped into this trading relationship between the Pueblo and the Apache. They wanted leather goods uh, that came from buffalo hides that the Apaches had hunted. The Spanish supplied the Apaches with metal goods, uh, tools, and so forth to produce leather, but 
The Spanish didn't feed them or give them more horses. So the Apaches were working with less and less, and the Spanish were expecting more and more over time. Horses eventually became a monetary unit and a uh, symbol, if you will, of money that could be used to trade for other types of goods. Horses came to represent wealth, and they were never distributed equally among the Apaches. And Apache society became rather stratified in a different way than it had been before. Those with horses had more political influence, for example. And this was the beginning of a long social change process among the Apaches. For the Apaches, their trade with Pueblo cowboys became insufficient for their needs, so they began turning to theft, to raiding, to supply their basic needs. And raiding became a routine part of the relationship. Pueblo cowboys and Spanish ranchers defended herds from rustling Apaches, from Apaches who would try to steal horses. People got killed, of course, in the meantime. Um... And the reciprocity that was necessary for Pueblo and Apache trade became not only trading in goods, horses, and crops, but also slaves, also people. So people would be traded for horses or for other goods um, when there was nothing else to provide in the trade. The Apaches began to raid neighboring tribes to find captives for the slave trade. These captives were most often women and children who worked as domestics in Spanish encomiendas and homes, and also um, men who would work in Spanish mines. The Spanish also raided Apache bands for slaves. The Apaches then would wage war on the Spanish to fulfill their kinship obligations, um, so to return people to Apache families that had been stolen from the Spanish. This kind of slave raiding intensified the level of violence and conflict in the region. There's three examples of this conflict leading up to the Pueblo Revolt. In 1640, an Apache attack on the Pueblos destroyed 50,000 bushels of corn. For example, in 1660, the Apaches attacked the Navajos, killed men, and sold the women and children. And then in 1670, the Spanish attacked the Apaches and sent 300 Apache children to the Spanish governor as slaves. Both the Spanish and Apache fought on horses, but the Spanish had guns, whereas the Apaches did not. And the loss of Apache women and children was devastating to the Apache communities. So again, they began to raid neighboring groups of Navajos and Pueblos to increase their own population numbers. We saw an example of this in the, in the Geronimo film when he took Chiricahuas who were not part of his own band to increase the numbers of his band. In 1680, the Pueblo Revolt arrived, and you all discussed this last week in class. Um, the result of the revolt was to eliminate Spaniards from New Mexico, 
north of El Paso, Texas. The Spanish, though, left their livestock behind, including horses, and that's how horses became dominant in the southwest and the west. In 1684, the Pueblo unrest spread to other Indian tribes, and the Spanish were not able to quickly recapture the area that they had previously occupied. So most historians agree that the cause of the Pueblo revolt dated back to at least 1640, if not before, and it was a result of this uh, these deficits in cornmeal, particularly as a result of um, encomienda farming, slave raiding as a way to make up for the lack of cornmeal or other trade goods, as well as the warfare that intensified because of the availability of horses for the for the Apaches and the use of uh, guns by the Spanish. The Pueblo essentially got sick of this system and decided to drive the Spanish out of uh, New Mexico, what was then New Mexico, what is now New Mexico, I should say. There was also an element of drought that led up to the Pueblo Revolt. There was a large-scale environmental change where Pueblo farming uh, became decreasingly profitable. People could not produce nearly as much corn uh, because of the drought, the lack of rain that had been present for several decades at the point of the Pueblo Revolt. The Spanish saw the Pueblos as an economic resource, and they maximized their economic goals at the expense of the Pueblos. The Spaniards uh, justified this uh, abuse, in a way, of the Pueblos with conversion, arguing that if they were converted to Christianity in the process, then abusing the Pueblo and Apache trade system was not as bad. Um, But the Spanish ultimately disrupted the Pueblo world beyond what the Pueblos could tolerate, and Indians simply wouldn't have it any longer. This problem ultimately resulted from the different expectations of trade that Indians and the Spanish had. Indians believed that, uh, to quote a prominent historian, the value of a good is not a given. It is culturally determined, and when goods cross ethnic boundaries, culture intervenes and attaches new meanings for them. So the value of corn, for example, was not fixed. It was not a set price for corn. It changed depending on the cultures that were interacting and trading with each other. And when Pueblos and Apaches would trade corn for other goods, for example, the value of corn would change depending on the ethnocentric values of Apaches and Pueblos. Spanish were entering into this system also, and they had their own cultural expectations of value. For Indians, Apaches, Pueblos, and Navajos, trade was not was about non-material purposes. So, again, there was not necessarily a profit motive or a set price for a particular good, but several types of goods, stones um, in particular, we think about turquoise as being very prominent in the Southwest. There are other very 
precious uh, minerals that were traded back and forth, and they were symbolic. Their value was mainly ceremonial, ritual, or symbolized other important aspects of, of Native societies. Another part of trade was gift-giving, so tobacco, food, clothing were all traded back and forth as a way of cementing relationships through giving presents rather than um, expecting something of equal value in return. Trade was also about redistribution of wealth. So in native societies, those with more would give to those with less because it cemented relationships and made the society function more harmoniously. Trade then had a significance beyond material wealth and profit for natives, and it was the major arena of exchange between native cultures and European cultures. For men in particular, trade was about prestige and power. Economic activity created, symbolized, and flowed from social relations rather than profit motivation. Profit motivation. Trade items, again, corn, um, minerals, stones, other things, horses, eventually, other things that were of value. These items represented relationships and prestige, and it was social ties that were the real indicator of wealth, not the... Uh, surplus in a given good, in a given trade good, that a particular individual or community held. In this system of multicultural trading, concessions had to be made on both sides. Sometimes people had to decide, well, I'll take less for a given item because that item happens to be more, more valuable to me, or I'll give you more for a particular item um, because I should, let me back up. Concessions had to be make on, made on both sides. So in other words, one party in the trade might say, I'll give you more for a particular item because that item represents status, wealth, or other kinds of social ties to me. Another party might accept less for a given item because that item does not represent the same kind of prestige and power. The manner and method of trade in native societies didn't always mean that one side dominated over the other, but power switched hands routinely. This was the trade system that the Spanish entered into in the Southwest, a trade that had been going on for a long time between Pueblos, Apaches, and Navajos, but the Spanish changed it significantly by introducing horses, by introducing metal goods, by giving some communities more power than other communities, and again, forcing the labor of Pueblo people in particular, and creating a system of slave raiding for um, captives change the power dynamics and put things more in the hands of the Spanish prior to the Pueblo revolt. So the Pueblos in 1680 decided to change that system and drive the Spanish out. Another example in the West of this kind of reciprocal trade system, what we call the middle ground of, ex of cultural exchange, took place in the Mandan and Hidatsa and Arikara Marketplace. Mandan is spelled M-A-N-D-A-N. Hidatsa is spelled H-I-D-A-T-S-A. And Arikara is spelled A-R-I-K-A-R-A. -A -A. These are three tribes um, in 
the upper part of the Missouri River who traded with each other routinely prior to the arrival of Europeans. The trade items they focused on were corn, clothing, shells um, to decorate clothing or, or make jewelry or other things, ceremonial items like pipestone for the purpose of making pipes and holding pipe ceremonies, pottery was another trade good, and tobacco was another kind of trade good. After contact with, Span- with the Spanish, horses became part of the system along with manufactured goods like guns, knives, pots, and luxury items like beads and alcohol in particular. This kind of exchange um, in the Mandan Hidatsa and Arikara marketplace lasted into the 1860s. So whereas the Pueblos disrupted the trade in 1680 for the purpose of driving out the Spanish and, and realigning the trade in their own favor, the Mandan Hidatsa and Arikara perpetuated trade with Europeans, some Spanish, some French, later on English um, settlers, into the 1860s. This kind of trade represents the importance of trade before contact with Europeans, or rather this kind of relationships, these kinds of relationships, represent the importance of trade before contact with Europeans, and reminds us that Indians were not living in isolated, self-sufficient groups, simply producing what they needed. They were dynamically involved in a large marketplace, and exchange was routine, not exceptional. Back to New Mexico for a minute. Um, The Spanish settlement and trade in New Mexico was not a priority for the Spanish crown. They were mostly there to prevent other European powers, the French and the English, from encroaching on the gravy train that they had started in Central and South America around silver and gold. After the Spanish reconquered the Southwest in 1693... Spain, the Spanish crown, began to look to New Mexico for a subsistence trade rather than wealth accumulation. And this brought Apaches, Comanches increasingly, and others into dialogue with Spain, and the ultimate control over Spain's economy became based in New Mexico rather than in Central and South America. All these groups were competing for resources and for power over the trade. New Mexico then also became a kind of middle ground, like the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara marketplace, for a very long time because of the demands of Indian traders and of tribes. So after the Spanish reconquered the southwest in 1693, they no longer were able to control the trade that they had prior to 1680, and what was created was an exchange system that... um, was based on relationships and differing cultural values of goods and subsistence rather than wealth accumulation. So after the Spanish reconquest of 1693, New Mexico became a society whose economic life revolved mostly around trade for consumption and subsistence purposes and wealth accumulation was simply not as important as it had been prior to 1680 for the Spanish. I want to talk a little bit about the horse trade because it's become the horses have become such an incredible icon in the history of Native American peoples and we need to understand a little bit about how that came to be. 
the horses that the Spanish left behind after the 1680 uh, revolt migrated themselves up to the mountains of Utah, the southern Rocky Mountains, and the Ute Indians, U-T-E, acquired these horses and began to venture out of the mountains in 1701 on horseback. The Comanches, who had been placed in the southern plains primarily, traded for horses from the Utes and from the Apaches, who had held horses before and after the Pueblo Revolt. Pueblos, uh, rather, Comanches had also been bison hunters um, prior to 1680, but again they were on foot rather than on horseback. After 1701, the Comanches acquired horses and began hunting buffalo on horses. Between the 1740s and the 1830s, the Comanche operated a major trade center on the southern plains that stretched west westward into New Mexico and into the southern Rocky Mountains. In 1700, Apaches controlled much of this area, and they began competing with Comanches for the area's water and shelter for horse herds, which Apaches also needed for their mixed farming and hunting economy. To gain additional advantage, the Comanches replaced the, the Apaches as Spain's preferred trading partner, which gave them access to goods and foods provided by the Pueblos, because the Pueblos were trading with Spain for uh, various types of subsistence and consumption goods as well as food. Comanches also acquired those materials from Spain as well and essentially replaced the Apaches as Spain's pr uh, dominant trading partner. But Spain continued uh, to be a rather poor trading partner because it refused to provide guns to the Comanches and it had a limited supply of other goods including horses uh, skins or leather and slaves. Jeffrey gave a very compelling lecture that ended with the Seven Years' War in the 1750s and 60s. And the French had become, had began to come up the lower Mississippi Valley and venture into the West um, in, in 1680. By the 1750s, they had had about 70 years to establish themselves as another imper imperial power to compete with the Spanish with uh, trade with native people. And the Seven Years' War, as we remember, took place primarily between the French and the British. The British had a stronger military, they had more settlers, um, and the Seven Years' War between the British and the French changed the spirit of alliance between French and Indians and between among Indian tribes. So the spirit of alliance transformed into a spirit of conquest and territorial sovereignty with Britain as the victor after the Seven Years' War. After that war, France ceded its claims to territory in the lower Mississippi Valley to Spain and essentially left the area for a while. This territory, territory later became the Louisiana Purchase, which Thomas Jefferson acquired um, in 1804. 
After the Seven Years' War, Spain attempted to make its government of New Mexico more centralized and efficient, but they didn't succeed because Comanches and others were not satisfied with Spain's limited trade goods and gift-giving practices, so the Spanish were, ne were never fully able to centrally control Mex New Mexico or the vast territory that became the Louisiana Purchase after the French left. By the 1770s, on the eve of the American Revolution, the Comanches were the most powerful traders in the southern plains. With a lot of surplus production, they redistributed wealth freely. They um, conducted an extensive, extensive trade in symbolic goods. And they tended to seal their commitments in the trade with a calumet ceremony, which Jeffrey talked about. The calumet, C-A-L-U-M-E-T, being a French word for pipe. And by um, smoking a pipe with your trading partners, you established a kind of kinship bond um, that would facilitate trade. The Comanche traders thus trapped the Spanish in a very difficult position. Spanish policies and the remoteness of New Mexico from the Spanish Empire prevented them from trading adequately with the Comanches. So, like the Apaches before them, Comanches began raiding and stealing from Spanish settlements. Spain couldn't just cut off the trade with New Mexico because that would open up avenues for the French to start trading with Indians, and Spain perceived that giving over power to the French would endanger their interests in the region. So, rather, Spain tried to discipline the Comanches by pursuing and killing their leader, a man named Cuerno Verde. Uh, Cuerno Verde is spelled C-U-E-R-N-O, and the second word is Verde, like green, V-E-R-D-E. After the death of Cuerno Verde, the Comanches and Spanish reached a truce in 1787, allowing for another type of power shift where Cheyenne Indians and Arapaho Indians, located mostly in Wyoming, uh, took over a larger trading role with the Spanish. I want to talk a little bit about slavery. I mentioned this before, but this is a rather complex issue, but it's important to understand um, especially when we're trying to think about the violence that uh, predominated the West and the Southwest well into the 19th century. Spain <clears throat> had outlawed slavery in the New World in 1500, but Indians could be legally enslaved if they were found guilty of cannibalism, idolatry, or sodomy, or if they were taken captive in a just war that resulted from them ignoring the requerimiento. So, in other words, if they refused conversion to Catholicism, then it was legal for Spain to capture Indians and make them slaves. Now, slavery was more than an economic system of labor. It was a way of life that generated conflict as well as social and political power. The Indian slave trade in women and children was primarily motivated by status, labor, marriage, and adoption, a way of increasing your population, a way of increasing the labor available to you, and a way of increasing your status or your wealth by the number of slaves you own. 
captives um, often became integrated into their captors' societies, but they rarely shed their alien stigma completely. And I want you to think now about what you know about African-American slavery in the South and draw some comparisons in your mind between this Indian slave trade system and the African-American slave trade system that we're more familiar with. Slavery enabled New Mexico to thrive as a trading center, even though it was remote from the Spanish crown. Slavery was a way for men to increase their status and to produce kin. Marriage and kinship were a fundamental part of the slave trade and the reason to buy and sell slaves for both Spanish men as well as native men. This was an ethnically fluid world where lineage rarely corresponded absolutely with social standing. But one's status as a captive or an adoptee as someone who had been adopted into a group or as a convert to Christianity was rarely forgotten, so social hierarchies did exist. The tension here was between assimilation and alienation, not domination and submission. Slaves' status in Spanish New Mexico was only vaguely encoded in law, politics, and ethnicity, unlike in the U.S. South, where things were highly stratified according to race and slavery was considered a fixed status depending on the condition of your mother. In the Southwest, slaves could walk away conceivably from slavery, or they could move out of that slave status by marrying somebody who was not a slave, but they were still bound to the system through kinship ties. They would have other relatives who were slaves or their children would conceivably be slaves. And um, social native, both native and Spanish societies had relatively elaborate social, social stratifications that made it difficult for people who were slaves to simply emancipate themselves. The Navajo, for example, organized their society around kinship, around family ties, but also around herds of sheep. The sheep influenced everything in Navajo society, from where people went to how extended families allied with one another. Navajo extended families organized themselves into outfits that were under the authority of a single headman who had a large flock of sheep. The Navajos sought captives to work as sheep herders, and the Comanches traded captives and skins for tools and food. So the Comanche and Navajo trade was centered around people that the Navajo wanted to acquire to work as sheep herders, and in return the Comanches receiving, were receiving tools that the Navajos made as well as food that the Navajos grew. Uh, poorer Navajos, those who did not have as many sheep or as many slaves, tended to raid livestock herds from other Navajos and trade them uh, for women who they could marry and increase their their outfit, their the size of their family population. Navajos and New Mexican settlers had livestock herding in common, and they began to share their cultures extensively and intermarry. Some New Mexicans were living in village settlements with Ute Indians and other non-Pueblo Indians who had been baptized as Christians, and the Spanish considered these folks to be uh, Spanish to some degree rather than Indian. Technically, these folks were not slaves if they had been converted to Christianity, but they were still consigned to a low status as laborers or soldiers.
After the Spanish and Comanches arrived at a peace in 1787, settlement in New Mexico began to shift and include Cheyenne and Arapaho traders, American traders from the east, as well as New Mexicans, along with captives and horses that were at the center of the trade and always had been. Navajos expanded their sheep herds, and after Mexican independence in 1821, they began exporting more and more to Mexico. Americans became part of this trade when the St. Louis Chihuahua Trail opened. This led to a kind of economic independence of the region. It's very, very difficult for the United States to incorporate this area into um, its society because Navajo men were becoming more powerful. And then we always had the Apaches, which were creating havoc everywhere and made it difficult for any state, Mexican or the United States, to fully incorporate the territory and exercise some kind of control over it. Therefore, the region stayed relatively independent of state control until the 1850s. Now, switching regions a little bit, as well as uh, talking about a different commodity, the fur trade was quite extensive um, between France and Britain and Native Americans. And this is something else that um, Jeffrey talked about quite a bit. France and Britain were interested in North America itself as potential gravy trains, the way that the Spanish had been interested in Central and South America. The slave trade was in many ways a support for a local economy, but the fur trade was a support for a global economy, and this is, of course, why empires such as France, Britain, and Spain were in uh, North America to begin with. They were trying to expand their economic power all over the world, and fur became the major way to do this. French-Canadian traders entered the northern plains in the 1730s and 1740s, coming from the Great Lakes area. Their operations were later taken over by Anglo-American and British traders in the 1780s when uh, the forts that served the Mandan, Arikara, and Hidatsa trade center um, became, came under British control. Later, Americans began to control these forts in the 1790s and in the 1820s. The main source of fur in this northern region was beaver. Northern beaver was the most valuable kind of beaver. They had thicker pelts. There was more felt uh, that you could produce from those pelts to make hats in Europe and other fashions that people wanted to wear. In the south... Uh, the primary trade good was deerskins. Deerskin created clothing for men's pants in particular, but also for book bindings and lots of other things that uh, Europe wanted. Buffalo hide was the primary trade good in the West, and buffalo hides were great material for belts for industrial machinery in Europe as well as the eastern United States. You could transform buffalo hide into these belts that would run these giant machines to produce uh, cloth and other types of goods, anything that the Industrial Revolution was interested in. Buffalo hide ultimately generated it. In the Northwest Coast, the primary trade good was sea otter. Sea otters had beautiful pelts 
that were worn as fur coats or other kinds of cloaks or mantles and were very popular in Europe and in the eastern United States. All of these goods were produced by native people, but they were part of a world economic system. So, for example, once hunters, native hunters, would trade with local uh, Anglo or French or Spanish traders, they would trade these fur pelts. Um, the goods would make their way back to Boston and by way of, of uh, leaving the Pacific Ocean. They would leave the Pacific Northwest, sail around the tip of South America, um, and back up to Boston as a way to then make their way to Europe. The other side of the trade, Boston around the tip of South America and up to Oregon, <clears throat> sent furs all the way to China, where they were exchanged for silks, lacquered furniture, and other types of things that elites in the United States and Europe wanted. Now this means that the economies of native peoples were increasingly controlled elsewhere, not locally but more globally. Indians used uh, money, used the things that they were acquiring from trading furs to buy stuff that was manufactured in Europe, most particularly metal goods, guns, pots, tools, other types of things, and they themselves became embroiled in a world market as both producers and consumers. They remained a part of the world economy until there was no longer a demand for the goods that they produced. Once the demand for the kinds of fur pelts and uh, skins that Indians produced disappeared, Indians were essentially closed out of this world eco economic market. Now, the French and the British had competed for profit in fur trading, though they had very different goals. The French were less interested in absolute territorial sovereignty. They had far fewer settlers in North America than the British did, and they were less interested in controlling this territory with a state government. They were more interested in the right to simply trade freely with Indians and remain unmolested by the British. But the British wanted to control the land itself. The main idea here is that culture changes as a result of trade. Both Native American cultures change and European cultures change. Native people rearranged their subsistence priorities, but they didn't forsake their traditional subsistence patterns for fur trade. They continued to fish, to dig clams, to pick berries, to farm, to dig roots, to do whatever they did normally to sustain themselves and redistribute their wealth. Trade also provided for Indians all over the United States, what became the United States, a way for people to gain wealth and rise in standing, so many Native people were eager to cooperate with these European empires that demanded the goods that they could produce. The second aspect of this kind of middle ground environment that existed for such a long time in the 18th century, the long 18th century, was gender and intermarriage. These two themes 
are a perfect example of how the middle ground operated prior to American settlement. The taboos on interracial marriage that we consider to be such an important part of American history actually developed much later in response to changing historical circumstances and images of Indian men and women. I want to talk about a historical figure you might know a lot about or might know a little bit about, a woman named Sakagawea, or Sacagawea as we call her in the South. Her name translates into bird woman. And she was the most prominent female figure of this period, famous, of course, for guiding Lewis and Clark. She was a Shoshone Indian. Shoshone is spelled S-H-O-S-H-O-N-I. Sakagawea is spelled S-A-C-A-G-A-W-E-A. And Sakagawea had been a captive who was purchased by a French trader named Charbonneau. He was employed by Lewis and Clark as a translator as they were on their expeditions in the early part of the 19th century. Lewis and Clark and Charbonneau joined uh, at the Mandan villages on the Missouri River, and Sacagawea was 16 or 17 years old at that time. Charbonneau had to convince Lewis and Clark to bring her, but they knew they'd need her because of her ties to the Shoshone, who could supply Lewis and Clark with the horses they needed to cross over the land from the Missouri River to the Columbia River on their expedition to the Pacific. Sakagawea's brother happened to be a Shoshone chief and therefore had quite a bit of power and trade goods at his disposal. Lewis and Clark also figured that a woman with a child would ease Indian groups that they encountered and encourage these groups to believe that they were not a war party, that they were an exploration party. Lewis and Clark barely mention her in their journals, but she did serve as a guide. Her knowledge of plants and medicinal cures was useful to the expedition's scientific goals, and she indeed smoothed relations with the Shoshone and other tribes that Lewis and Clark encountered. Now, her image, uh, the image of Sacagawea, has been manipulated to serve an American frontier narrative. She's come to signify Indians' compliance with the mission that symbolically incorporated the Louisiana Purchase into the United States and also consecrated the wilderness to the United States' national ideology. By focusing on the progress of civilization through democratization and reform, Americans later in the 19th century recast Sacagawea as an overt reflection of manifest destiny. Her life and her actions signified the rightness of America's conquest of the continent. She gave a kind of, gave a kind of female imprint to the wilderness, meaning that the West became not merely the domain of men, and then by implication, the whole nation belonged to women as well in the later 19th century. She, Sacagawea therefore became a kind of icon of both manifest destiny expansionism and women's suffrage. One of the images that's very influential in the perceptions of Native women is this dichotomy between the squaw and the princess. Now, the Indian princess is receptive to and fosters invasion by a superior civilization, even though her tragic demise 
may result. Pocahontas, as Pocahontas' story has been told this exact same way, and Sacagawea's story has been told this way also. The historical record creates this problem because the information on Native women is relatively obscure, and there's a tendency to oversimplify Native women's roles in this process of expansion and exploration. But there's another story, one where Native women used Europeans and Euro-Americans to, to their own ends, and their response to these settlers was not simply reactive. On the surface, intermarriage seems like assimilationism, the idea that a Native woman would marry a non-Native man um, is easily interpreted as the idea that that Native woman wants to become, become more like this um, European man or wants her children to become more like this his European father. But it was more complex than that. Indian women used marriage to maintain their own traditions and work towards their own people's advantage. And this particular agency by Native women undermines this squaw princess image. So contrast Sacagawea's story with that of Celiast Smith, a Chinook woman. Celiast is spelled C-E-L-I-A-S-T, and Chinook is spelled C-H-I-N-O-O-K. Lewis and Clark met the Chinook on their travels in 1805. The Chinook lived in the Columbia River Basin, where abundant resources, especially salmon, uh, created a highly stratified society. The Chinook had distinct categories of nobility, of commoners, and of slaves. And the nobility were known for their abilities in the trade. The Chinook nobility sought out European and American traders because trade was their main activity. To them, the Euro-American presence was an opportunity and not a threat. Europeans and Americans, though, had very diverse opinions about the Chinook and other societies that they encountered in this region. One British governor uh, called them the most intelligent Indians and the most acute and finished bargain makers that I have ever fallen in with. But Americans thought of them as thieves and liars, a misperception probably of the Chinook value on redistribution of wealth. For the Chinook, if someone had too much and didn't share it, then stealing it was allowed as a way to put that person in his place. Americans probably didn't like their goods being stolen, but the Chinook believed that they had too much and they weren't sharing it, so it ought to be taken. According to the first European observers, at the end of the 18th century, Chinook society was a strongly patriarchal society. Women had little control over who they married. Only husbands could initiate divorce, and residence was patrilocal, meaning that wives would move to the homesteads of their husbands and their husbands' families. But in Chinook society, women could also speak freely, and their husbands often listened to their advice. A high-status woman could easily become a chief of Chinook society if she had no brothers, for example. Fifty years later, fifty years after the um, earliest Lewis and Clark and then later British explorations of this territory in the 1870s and 80s, observers commented on the enormous power and influence that Chinook women enjoyed.
scholars tend to think that this growth in power and influence arose as a result of the trade with Europeans and Americans. Sex was one reason why European and American men sought out women. There were very few European women out there to begin with, um, and high-status Native women would sometimes essentially run brothels with low-status female slaves serving as prostitutes. Chinook men would sell sex with their wives for trade goods, or married women might sell themselves if the price was right. Chinook parents began arranging marriages for their daughters to traders, and these formal unions promised greater status and wealth to the girl's family. With relatively little family or marital power in their own society, Chinook women may have also seen marriage to European men as a way to gain some kind of advantage in family decision-making. Now back to Celia's story. Celius was the daughter of a high-status leader who had befriended Lewis and Clark and who had probably gained even more influence through that connection. At around age 16, she married a French-Canadian baker who worked at the local trading post. He was a kind of middle class at the fort. He owned slaves, but he was not a clerk or he wasn't in charge particularly in any way. He was a laboring man. His name was Basile. B-A-S-I-L-E. And when she and Basile moved from uh, Fort George, which was at the mouth of the river um, near Vancouver, they moved inland to Fort Vancouver. Her status was lowered to a laborer's wife. Basile had a bad drinking habit, and Celius tried to leave him, but officials at the fort, Fort Vancouver, would not allow it. Prohibitions had been passed against white traders marrying full-blood Indian women and Indian men marrying traders' wives. Finally, in the 1830s, Celiest took a man named Solomon Smith as her partner anyway. Smith was a schoolteacher, and he went to Fort Vancouver as a voyageur, as someone who um, uh, worked with French trading partners, trading parties to handle logistics, basically. And a voyageur was an even lower status occupation than Basile's occupation as a baker. Um... Solomon Smith may have been attracted to Celias because she offered an alternative beyond the status-conscious fort where he was not likely to gain much advantage or make a mark on his own. They relocated to settle near Celias' sisters in an independent community of made up of white men and Indian women not too far from the fort. Solomon Smith indeed acquired enough influence in that territory to be on a list of petitioners who later asked Congress to let them join the United States. Later they moved back to Celius' original home where Smith was totally apart from European settlement and completely dependent on her Chinook family. This move enhanced Celia's status and Solomon Smith's dependence on her. They operated a farm, a store, a sawmill, and they brought in substantial livestock herds to the area. 
There, Solomon Smith became a community leader and was instrumental in forming the first provisional government in Oregon. For Celius, this return home enabled her to assume a position of leadership among her own people, where she held meetings on her farm and was able to protect Indians from abuses by other white settlers. She also continued the role of a high-status woman in holding Indian slaves through even the 1870s, well after African-American slaves had been emancipated in the South. But the Chinooks suffered a demographic collapse, particularly because of, mal of a malaria epidemic and the spread of venereal disease from European sailors to women and to their children. And this population collapse weakened Chinook power in the area. In 1866, the Oregon legislature outlawed marriage between whites and Indians, which was another sign of changing attitudes that accompanied American settlement. When the British and the French were in control, Indian and white marriage was encouraged, but by the time the United States took over Oregon, Indian and white marriage became outlawed. So women on the Northern Plains present a somewhat different experience of intermarriage and trade. Women who married white men on the Upper Missouri River around the Mandan Hidatsa Arikara Trade Center felt power to exert control over and discipline their husbands. One trader in this area described in 1835 how his Lakota wife whipped him for cheating on her and that that wasn't the first time she had done it. Women on the Northern Plains had roles as mediators, economic informants, consumers, producers, companions, and educators. Their innovations in this middle ground of trade made them agents of change in their own communities. Before European trade became dominant, women traded corn, beans, squash, and pumpkins for buffalo meat, hides, and clothing in this area. Indian women produced both kinds of goods and were the principal traders. Men's trade usually involved ceremonial items like pipes, and later horses, which supplanted food and clothing as the primary items of trade. As women's roles in trade became subordinated to the horse trade, they found other ways to contribute, namely with their authority in the kinship and family realm. Some Native women began to marry European and American men, and in a way what they were trading was not a material good but knowledge and authority in exchange for greater economic security and enhanced status within their own families. But this type of trade didn't result typically in Indian women losing control over their sexual choices. Men, whether Indian or white, could do nothing about who Indian women chose to have sex with. They also tended to leave their husbands at will or beat them if they didn't conform to her standards of a good husband. But like Celia Smith, Plains Indian women likely saw advantages in choosing European men. Those men had a kind of technological know-how and access to material goods. In Plains cultures, spiritual power could also be transmitted through intercourse, and Indian men could gain access to European men's power by having sex with a woman who herself had had sex with a European man. This belief thus gave women who had liaisons with Europeans a unique status and power themselves in their own societies. 
unlike in the Chinook case in Oregon, where trading companies limited or prohibited Indian white marriages, trading companies in the Northern Plains encouraged it because it had economic benefits. Indian wives of traders had families who would be loyal to the trading company and with whom they had friendly relations that were conducive to profit for the traders. For Indian families, they knew that if a sister or daughter married a European man, they were likely to be able to partake of the sharing and gift-giving that accompanied trade. The woman would also share information on the latest goods, changes in company policy, or trading plans with their families. European men acquired responsibility to their Indian wives' families, as well as to their wives and children. But there was a benefit. European men had greater status in the wives' tribe than someone who had not married in would have. And these men learned languages from their wives, which made trade easier. Race and class did come to be a factor in Plains intermarriage eventually. Indian women defined as lower status in native terms tended to marry men of likewise lower status in European terms, while native women from leading families tended to marry the clerks and authority figures in the trading company. Spanish fur company employees also typically married women of modest backgrounds, as those of a higher class, women of a higher class, tended to prefer white men. Men, too, made similar choices. One American man married a Métis, Métis, M-E-T-I-S. Métis is a reference to people who are of mixed um, French and Native ancestry. One American man married a Métis woman because he felt her mixed European and Indian ancestry made her one step closer to European-style civilization. So everybody was gaining, and it, but everybody had to make compromises also. Women's responses to contact and colonization varied with cultural and historical contexts. They rarely abandoned their own cultures. Rather, their knowledge of their own cultures was critical to their adaptability and survival. They most often used the, their connections to enhance their power within their own societies and on this middle ground rather than in European societies. Indian women are examples of the kind of innovation that was characteristic of the middle ground and that would begin to change as the United States took over the West. <laughs>